Now, although two parables from uh, Matthew 25 have been listed for this afternoon, I'm actually going to begin by looking at some verses from Matthew chapter 13. I do not pretend that these verses tell us um, all there is to know about parables, but they do tell us some important things about what Jesus understood the function of the parables to be. I am going to begin by reading Matthew 13, 10 to 17, then 34 and 35. The disciples came to him and asked, Why do you speak to the people in parables? He replied, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been granted to you, but not to them. Those who have will be given more, and they will have an abundance. As for those who do not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing they do not see, though hearing they do not hear or understand, in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, you will be ever hearing but never understanding, you will be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused, they hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes, otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. Truly I tell you many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see but did not see it and to hear what you hear but did not hear it. And again, 34, Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. This is the word of the Lord. When one asks the question, why did Jesus tell stories, that is, narrative parables, it is not uncommon to hear wrong or, perhaps better, reductionistic answers. Jesus used them as illustrations. As a good homiletician, he'd make a point and then he would illustrate it. Well, doubtless, parables function that way sometimes. On the other hand, the purpose sounds a lot more somber in 13, 11, and 12. The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. That has to be incorporated into the function of the parables in some sense. Others suggest that he told these parables because he favored the enigmatic, the thought-provoking, the open-ended, rather than truths and propositions. That's particularly a common stance in the emerging church crowd to this day. Well, the first answer to that is Jesus preaches using many different literary genres. He is sometimes a wisdom preacher, sometimes an apocalyptic preacher. He can preach using proverbs 
one-liners, extended discourse, lament, exposition of Old Testament texts, non-narratival extended metaphors, as in John 10 and John 15, and much other material. He is not limited to one particular mode. So to argue that he limited himself to, um, to, to narratival material because he favored the enigmatic is simply a huge mistake. And um, in this regard, uh, it's also worth recognizing that many of the parables are less enigmatic than some think once you do pay more attention to the flow of the argument in a particular book. Some simply argue he used the parables to hide things from the non-elect. After all, you have to do something with chapter 13, verses 11 and 12. And there is truth to that as well. And yet it is surely reductionistic because at the same time in verses 34 and 35, one wonders um, what he means if this is merely a question of hiding things from the non-elect. There he is opening his mouth in parables, quoting Psalm 78, uttering things hidden since the creation of the world. That is, it seems to be a revelatory function rather than a closing down function. So why did Jesus tell stories? I'm going to suggest two reasons, but I do not pretend that these reasons are exhaustive. I'm merely priming the pump with these two reasons, though I would be the first to insist there are other reasons one can find articulated or are that, are, that, that are demonstrable inferences from what Jesus actually does. I will tell you what the two reasons are, and then I will take a bit of time to unpack them, and then we'll look at two parables um, from the eschatological discourse. Number one, Jesus tells parables because in line with scripture, his message blinds, deafens, and hardens. I repeat, Jesus tells parables because in line with scripture, his message blinds, deafens, and hardens. And second, Jesus tells parables because in line with scripture, his message reveals things hidden in scripture. His message reveals things hidden in Scripture. Now, there are other reasons, but let me focus on those two since I think that they are the two that are articulated in these verses. On the first point, Jesus tells parables because, in line with Scripture, his message blinds, deafens, and hardens. Begin with verses 10 to 12. The context, of course, you will remember, Jesus tells the parable of the sower, and then before he gives the explanation of the parable of the sower to his disciples in private, that explanation is solicited by the disciples themselves. What does this mean? And so forth. And this is the explanation that he gives. Verses 10 to 12 set up a contrast, a contrast between those who have and those who do not have, between those to whom the secrets of the kingdom of heaven are given and those who do not have them who do not receive them, to whom they are not given. Then the negative side of this contrast, people who are being blinded, blinded and deafened by Jesus' teaching, are treated in verses 13 to 15. The positive side of this contrast is then treated in verses 16 to 17. So that's the way the passage runs. 10 to 12, the contrast set up, and then 13 to 15, the negative side, 16 to 17, the positive side. Now, lying at the heart of this is the extended quotation from Isaiah 6. And it is so important for what we're going to do that we need to remind ourselves, if only briefly, exactly what is quoted from that passage. 
Isaiah 6 occurs in the prophecy after Jeremiah has already been preaching in a pretty denunciatory way for several chapters. Woe to you who add house to house until all the little people are squeezed out of the land. Woe to you who rise up early to mix your drinks and so forth. The various woes for the cultural decay taking place in the southern kingdom um, in the 8th century, toward the end of the 8th century. Um, and then we're told in the year that King Uzziah died, who on the whole was a pretty good king until he spoiled things toward the end of his life, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe, perhaps the hem of his robe, filled the entire temple. Typical of these Old Testament theophanies, a bold statement is made, such as, I saw the Lord, but what is actually described is hidden or shrouded. It's in smoke. Um, just the hem of the garment fills the whole temple and, and so forth. Um, and then above him were seraphs, each with six wings, with two they cover their faces, even they cannot gaze on him who is holy. With two they covered their feet, a common sign of modesty in the ancient world, and with two they flew. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. It's worth pausing there just for a moment, I think, to reflect on the word holy. I don't know how many books have been written on the Kadosh word group in Hebrew and the Hagios word group in Greek. What shall we make of it? There are endless hymns and choruses that rejoice over the theme. Some begin with etymology and conclude that the word means something like separate. But are the seraphs crying, separate, separate, separate is the Lord God Almighty? Something is lacking there somewhere, isn't it? Others connect holiness with morality, but are they merely crying, moral, moral, moral is the Lord God Almighty? There's something wanting there, isn't there? As far as I can see, the holiness word group in both testaments um, begins with a pretty tight meaning at the center and then works out in concentric circles, expanding concentric circles. Right at the heart of the issue, holy, as far as I can see, is almost an adjective for God. In that sense, only God is holy. God is God. There is no other. God is holy. And then, moving the concentric circle out a little bit, that which is connected with him may be holy. So that the shovel that takes out the ash from the altar is said to be holy, and it must not be used for anything else. So God is, in that sense, cut off from all others. Only God is holy. But then that which is used to take out the ash from the altar is likewise cut off from all other shovels. Uh, it is re reserved only for him. It is, it is to be used only for the domain of the holy. And then people are said to be holy, either said to be holy or commanded to be holy. Be holy for I am holy. That is, we are his. Now when the shovel is said to be his, it's not moral. It is separate unto him. When people are said to be holy, then there are entailments as to how they live. So that 
human beings being reserved for God means that they must be in line with God, reflect God in all the ways in which his image bearers ought to reflect God, and, and thus there are overtones of morality and conduct and speech and God-centeredness and so on bound up with being exclusively his. And the word keeps expanding all the way to the periphery where occasionally holy can be used of pagan people, pagan priests. A pagan priest might be said to be holy not because he really does worship the true God, but at least he's working in the domain of the sacred or something of that order. So here, the sheer godness of God is what is fundamentally at issue over against the creation. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the outposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Now, in contrast with the previous chapters, this is what encourages Isaiah to say, woe is me. Up until then, Isaiah has pronounced his woes on party after party after party, known for corrupting and debasing the entire culture. But now he sees something of God himself, and he understands that he himself is a corrupt partner in these activities. Woe is me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live a man amongst a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the king, now not King Uzziah, but the king, the supreme king, the Lord Almighty. And then you recall the account, one of the seraphs touches his tongue with a live coal from the altar, which is a way of saying that the filthy tongue, reflecting the inner heart, of which Isaiah complains, can only be cleaned up by the sacrifice that God himself has ordained. That's straightforward. This has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for, and only then does God speak. And he issues, as it were, before the courts of heaven, a, a broad challenge. Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And Isaiah said, here am I, send me. Now, we should not misunderstand this response. This is not, I'm your man, go ahead. The last person who said, though all others betray you, yet not I, did not end up too well. No, in the light of the sequence of the narrative, this is more like, uh, excuse me, uh, do you think you could send me, please? Will I do? Hmm? The man has just been hugely humbled by his own sin. And although doubtless he knows something of release from the pronouncement now of forgiveness, the sin atoned for, now he wants in turn to be a faithful uh, messenger of the Lord. And God says, go and tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing but never perceiving, make the heart of this people calloused, make their ears dull, and close their eyes, otherwise they might hear with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Now that is a scorcher. How would you like that preached on your ordination Sunday? And we have to think through just what is going on here. One of the interesting equivalents in the New Testament, without quoting these words at all, I think, is John 8.45, where Jesus says, because I tell you the truth, you do not believe. Now, if that had been a concessive, although I tell you the truth, it would have been bad enough. But a causal? Because I tell you the truth. It's the truth, in other words, itself that is guaranteeing the unbelief. That is, there are some people who have got to the place where their frames of reference, their way of looking at things is so hardened in antipathy that it is the truth itself that blinds and hardens and deafens. 
Or you see it again elsewhere in 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter uh, 1, where certain people, because they have not believed, have got so far down the pike, as it were, in idolatry, that the final judicial pronouncement has been brought back into time, and God sends them a delusion so that they will believe the lie. So it sounds as if in Isaiah's day, the situation is so depraved, so debased, that very few will respond positively. And that means that as Isaiah preaches, he is guaranteed to have hardening hearts. His very message will blind, deafen, and harden. You know that going in. What are your alternatives if, because I tell you the truth, they will not believe? Stop telling the truth? That's frankly the advice of a lot in the emerging crowd. Oh, people can't believe that anymore, so you soften and tell them something else. Do you, do you, do you see? But Jesus is not going to stop telling the truth. And so you know, therefore, in that sort of situation, that it is the truth itself that blinds, hardens, and deafens. In fact, being a faithful messenger of the Lord thus becomes, in effect, the equivalent of being a message to blind, and blind harden, and, and condemn some people. And Isaiah understands it. So he says... 6.11, for how long, O Lord? That is to say, I, I don't mind serving in this capacity if, if I have uh, 30 years of this sort of ministry, but at the end of it, I'd like to uh, hold that there was at least the prospect of a decent revival going on, maybe a general reformation, you know. I can put up with some bleak years and tough ministry, but at the end, it really would nice, be nice to see a great harvest coming in, don't you think? And the Lord answers to the question, for how long? until the cities lie ruined without inhabitant until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken and though a tenth remains in the land it will again be laid waste in other words judgment has already been pronounced and of course this is not finally fulfilled until a century and a quarter or more until the destruction of Jerusalem in, in, AD, in, in BC 587 or thereabouts there is no hope in this chapter at all until the last two or three lines. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. And that is picked up as a theme. There's a, there are structural connections in the book of Isaiah itself. But it is picked up as a theme in chapter 11, of course, where a shoot then comes from the stump of Jesse, David's line. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord is on him. And then you have this marvelous eschatological vision of um, the bear eating with a lamb, a child playing over an asp's hole. And they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And it is impossible in the light of Christian scriptures uh, not to see that this is fulfilled in Christ, which means that from Isaiah's day on, uh, there was really no hope for another seven centuries until the Messiah himself came. And now we come to chapter 13, and these are the words that Jesus quotes. Now, many of us, of course, will remember that... Um, uh, Jesus says something very similar in the parallel passage in Mark chapter 4. But in Mark chapter 4, 10 to 12, it's henna plus the subjunctive. He preaches this way, in order that seeing they will not see, and so on. And there are some who have tried to make that henna clause uh, to be uh, conative, to, to, to re express result. Um, for the life of me, I don't think you can do that. Not when it's henna lest in order that such and such less something happens, I think that you really have to take it as purpose. 
but within the context of the Old Testament, its purpose in terms of pronounced judgment, um, its purpose in terms of pronounced judgment when, when God has determined that people have got so far. In this passage, chapter 13, uh, instead of Hinnah, you have uh, on, for this account, that is, this is why I speak to them in parables, because though seeing they do not see, though hearing they do not hear or understand, in which case it sounds as if, as if the cause is in their inability, their unwillingness to listen or see. That's probably correct. But the causal has already been established in verses 10 and 11. That is, it's backed up a wee bit. Mark's account is much shorter. Matthew's account is equally bleak, however, when you read verses 10 and 11. The question is asked, why do you speak to the people in parables? He replied, haughty, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Now, somebody, some want that haughty to be haughty recitative. That is really a kind of introduction of a quotation, so that it's, in that case it's not causal. There is no instance in the New Testament, and probably not in broader Greek, at least I've never come across one, where haughty recitative is used after something like he answered or he replied. Um, because that already is indicating the quotation, you don't need the haughty recitative. I think that you have to take it as a causal, in which case the logic is very predestinarian. Why do you speak to the people in parables? Because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. You have to see it that strongly. Yet at the same time, you should also see that there is cause granted in the people's hardening sin too. This sort of dynamic is not uncommon in either testaments, of course. Uh, one thinks of a passage like Genesis chapter 50, verses 19 and 20, where the brothers come to Joseph after the old man has died and uh, said, in effect, uh, uh, please don't bump us off, don't punish us now that the father has died. In fact, he didn't want that himself. Whether they're telling the truth, they insist that, he had, that the old man had made this a part of his uh, desire before he passed away. And uh, Joseph is a bit upset that they should think that he would still be holding it in for them. And then he describes what happened in these terms. You intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. Now that is cast neither in terms of their intent and then God's reaction, nor in terms of God's intent and their reaction. But in the one event, the intent of the evildoers and the intent of God. It's not that God had intended to have Joseph driven down to Egypt in an air-conditioned chauffeur-driven limousine, but unfortunately they mucked it up and he went down as a slave instead. Nor is it that God was asleep at the switch that day and um, they, they sold him down into slavery, but God turned around and in any case because he's a better chess player than they are. Um, but rather, in one and the same event, God intended it for, evil, for, for good and they intended it for evil. So also here, it seems to me, God's intent precisely in these events is to pronounce judgment, blind, hardened, deafened, not because he is referring these uh, divine reactions to neutral people, but to people, in fact, who are hardened in their sin, too. So the causality of all of this is complex, and one should not trip over that element of it, it seems to me. Still, Jesus is saying that he fulfills this text, in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. Now, as far as I can see, whenever Matthew uses Plato 23 or 24 times, always there is some notion of fulfillment, not merely completing something, but, 
but actually bringing something to pass that is anticipated. But the form of the anticipation is often in terms of a pattern that is established. It's, it's very frequently not a specific prediction with an event that fulfills the prediction, but a pattern of conduct or, or the like which is then fulfilled, brought to pass, um, in line with his trajectory. And I, it seems to me that that is what is being said there, too. Moreover, Jesus has already indicated that there is such a trajectory. In Matthew chapter 5, at the end of the Beatitudes, um, he indicates that the, the opposition to himself and to his followers is in line with the opposition to the prophets who were before you. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. There is already a trajectory of this rejection of the truth already established. So, where Jesus is aware of how some are being blinded by the light, he apparently goes on to use more parabolic teaching. This is not because other things do not blind, other teaching can blind, but parabolic teaching, because it is analogical and somewhat more enigmatic, does have this particular effect in some instances. It's in line with what Jesus says in 7.6, don't cast your pearls before swine. So, the first function of parables then is this, he tells parables because in line with scripture, his message blinds, deafens, and hardens. Second, Jesus tells parables because in line with scripture, his message reveals things hidden in scripture. Now we'll focus on 13, 34, and 35. Once again, there is an Old Testament quotation, this time from Psalm 78. This is one of the so-called historical psalms. Let me come at this tangentially. What shall we think of American history? Most in this room, I'm sure, were born Americans. Well, that's one interpretation. Um, because I'm a Canadian, I have taken particular interest in the American Revolution. I'm a Canadian by birth. I became an American when my son, who's a Marine, needed increased security clearance because he was doing counterintelligence and that sort of thing, and he could only get it if his parents became naturalized. Um, so I observe, for example, when I read the sermons of the revolutionary period, that the folk who stayed down here uh, were not far away from manifest destiny positions. On the other hand, quite a few thousand went north into Canada. There we call them the UELs, the United Empire Loyalists, and they preached sermons too. And their sermons sounded really quite different. They based a lot more on Romans 13 and passages like that. Um, uh, and, and that raises some fundamental questions about how you uh, interpret the American experience. And I could talk about American history and say only factual things along this line. A great nation founded by pilgrim fathers who were determined to have freedom to worship God as they thought right. And despite many failures, nevertheless establishing a bastion of freedom and democracy in um, uh, a, a land where not only little of that was known, but a land of plenty that welcomed so many immigrants from so many different backgrounds. Um, a land that generously gave of its treasure and its blood in bailing out Europe in two world wars. Um, a, a land which, though it started in uh, slavery, uh, ended up at the uh, enormous cost, the most expensive co uh, cost uh, I I relative to, to, to loss of life per capita in, in any war. 
uh, that the country has experienced in the Civil War that bred uh, freedom and uh, brought a measure of genuine equality. And for all the sins and the faults and so on, it is still the land of privilege and hope and uh, the, the manifestation of the goodness of God and, and so forth, all, all of which is true. On the other hand, if I uh, wanted to uh, paint a darker picture, um, I could retell the same story and focus instead on the failures, um, a wonderful uh, uh, declaration of independence and a, a wonderful constitution um, which didn't really wrestle seriously enough with the problem of slavery that was there from the very beginning. And uh, even after the Civil War, um, all the years of Jim Crow down to 1960s, and even after that, a lot of it is still around, and uh, uh, encouraging um, consumerism and uh, sometimes exploitation of resources and this sort of thing, uh, so that in the name of freedom, in fact, we may be exploiting others and so forth. Um, where I can tell a whole lot of other things that are also true. So how will you consider history of Israel in the Old Testament? Well, God chose the Israelites. He didn't choose the Hittites. And to them he gave the law. He disclosed himself, which is such a wonderful thing. And God led them and protected them in the desert. Oh, yes, there were some failures, but nevertheless, eventually he did bring them into the promised land. And then there were some ups and downs, but eventually God established the great Davidic promises. He brings the uh, tabernacle to Jerusalem. Jerusalem becomes the city of the great king, 2 Samuel chapter 6 and 7. And despite ups and downs and the exile and so forth, yet nevertheless, this constant promise that one day there will be a great messianic reversal. This is a wonderful heritage to be born in. All true. And then you read Stephen. You, you, you see, quite a lot of preaching in that time, in Jewish circles and in Christian circles, did a kind of brief recapitulation of the history. That was already being done at the time of the historical Psalms and elsewhere. You do a recapitulation of the history. But the moral lesson that you derive from the history depends on what parts of the history you put in. You read Stephen's speech closely, and what he has really done is tell the history initially very simply, very open-endedly. You don't really see where it's going until you begin to detect that there is a pattern of disclosing how again and again and again people rejected the revelation that was given. So that when you finally get to the putative Messiah, Jesus himself, if the people rejected this Messiah, it's all part of the pattern, isn't it? And you by wicked hands have slain him, which is enough to get their goat, and they rise up and stone him to death. But something similar is done by Paul in the Pisidian Antioch address, and already this sort of pattern was there in the Old Testament. So you read Psalm 78, and it focuses on certain wilderness experiences that showed how the people had rejected God. And Psalm 95, don't you reject God. Today you must hear his voice so that you do not be like the people who rejected God in the Old Testament who did not enter into God's rest. So an awful lot is how you tell the story. So Psalm 78, therefore, begins with a kind of reflection on what the psalmist is going to do. He says, I will open my mouth with a parable. In Greek, I will utter hidden things, things of old. And you ask, wait a minute, which is it? Are you uttering things that are hidden? Are you merely rearticulating the hiddenness or are you explaining them? And in the context of the parable, it seems to me that what the introduction is saying, in effect, is this. You know the history. I'm not re-articulating to you anything from the history that you don't already know. 
But I am telling you the history in such a way that you see things now through my retelling it that you did not know. Things hidden from the past. Things that our fathers have known, but yet things nevertheless hidden. Uh, because in our blindness we like to retell the history in such a way that we are always on the good side and so on. But so often these, these uh, historical psalms and uh, other expositions of the, the, the past are, are retold by the prophets and then by Stephen and Paul and elsewhere precisely in such a way to emphasize those things in the past and the patterns of the past that actually show you a dark side, as it were. And so the data are known by our fathers, but this unpacking of them uh, reveals fresh things. And in some measure, that's what Jesus is doing in his parables. That is, he tells parables because in line with Scripture, fulfilling Scripture, his message reveals things hidden in Scripture. So especially with respect to the kingdom, so many first century conservative Jews thought of the kingdom as coming with a bit of a bang once the long-promised Davidic Messiah shows up. But instead, Jesus starts talking about the kingdom as a yeast that works slowly in a lump of dough, as seed that is received variously in different soils, and so on and so on and so on. All of which have the effect of thinking about the kingdom in ways that most hadn't been expecting. And that does, nevertheless, flow out of a certain reading of the Old Testament that depends on quite a lot of other readings of the Old Testament. Um, I mentioned in this morning's address that the disciples did not really think of uh, Jesus as both triumphant king and suffering servant until the cross itself. They just didn't have the categories for it. But which of us, which of us who are Christians today would want to deny that 2 Samuel 7 and Isaiah 53 find their ultimate trajectories in Jesus himself? We, we ex ex accept that, absolutely. When Peter makes his great confession in Caesarea Philippi, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, at one level, Jesus says, you're blessed, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And yet you still have to say in some sense that it's a pre-Christian confession. Because when he confesses Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of the living God, he does not mean by Messiah what you and I mean quite. That is, he understands him as the promised Davidic king. But I can't use the word Messiah or Christ without embracing within it also the cross and the resurrection. I simply cannot do it at this point. But that is precisely what Peter denies to his meaning of Christ as the following verses disclose, earning him the memorable rebuke, get me behind me, Satan. Uh, let me put this in slightly different guise. Do you ever wonder when you read the Bible in moments of uh, self-doubt, why God doesn't make more prophecies a little more explicit? I mean, why do you have to depend quite so much on typology? Why do you have to depend quite so much on trajectories? Uh, you read some New Testament quotation from the Old and you think, okay, I see that it fulfills the Old Testament because the text says so, I believe it. God says that it must be true. But for the life of me, I, I don't quite see how it's... It's worked out. And, of course, that is why Greg Beal and I worked on that fat volume together, Commentary on the New Testament, Use of the Old Testament, to work more of these things out. But nevertheless, on a first reading, there are a lot of things that are really quite difficult, aren't they? So don't you wonder why does God never made them a little more explicit? 
How about this? This is Isaiah 53, as Don Carson would have rewritten it, if he were putting together a Bible, just to make things explicit. And it shall come to pass in those days, says the Lord, that there shall be a chap called Augustus Caesar of the Roman Empire. Footnote. Yes, I know there's no such thing. Not yet. <laughs> the Babylonians are in power. They're going to get beaten up by the Medo-Persians. They're going to be taken over by the Greeks. The Greeks are going to break up under four generals. And then there's going to be chaos through much of the Middle East until the Romans take over. And Palestine will actually uh, be taken over by the Romans, uh, well, on your calendar, about uh, 650 years from now. Back to the main text. And there shall be a young woman by the name of Mary, who will be living up in Nazareth. And she'll meet a young artisan by the name of Joseph and they will become betrothed. And you start going through it all, and uh, down to Bethlehem, and uh, Herod, and Magi, and all that. And eventually you, you include stories, and you name Pilate the governor, and uh, uh, the, the, the hand-washing, it, it, it's all there. And clearly in a manuscript that is pre-Christian. In fact, 700 years pre-Christian. Now that would be prophecy, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that squelch a whole lot of the naysayers and the doubters wouldn't it be much more uh, guaranteed to um, call faith from reluctant people? Mind you, can you imagine how many mothers will be calling their daughters Mary? How many boys would have been born with the name Joseph? How many people would have moved to Nazareth? Would have been the only city in the Middle East for Jews to live in. Or maybe all the cities would be renamed Nazareth in the hope that maybe the Messiah could spring from that one. And there's Pilate. What do you do with him? I will not wash my hands. I will not wash my hands. They're being dragged there against my will. You see? And if he manages not to wash his hands, then he's destroyed all of biblical prophecy. And if he does wash his hands, uh, he knows about the prophecy and he can't do it. He's being dragged to it and he's forced into it. Now, Luther wrote a powerful book on the bondage of the will. But the problems of God's electing grace and of human responsibility would take on some massive new dimensions if we had this kind of uh, uh, c complexity and specificity. But what God has done instead, it seems to me, is given us patterns and prophecies and trajectories, typologies, which are textually controlled. They're not endlessly open-ended. They are textually controlled. But we are so blind that we do not see them until after the events to which they point come to pass. And in retrospect, we look back and we see them and we marvel at God's goodness and wisdom. But even now, there are all kinds of naysayers who want a kind of reductionistic approach and the truth actually blinds them. They cannot see it even though it's actually there. That is what has gone on. And something of that is already presupposed, is it not? A little earlier in the chapter, verses 16 and 17, Blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. Truly, I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see. So there is an eschatological dimension. And to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Or again, beyond the passages we've quoted, down in verse 52. Every teacher of the law who has been instructed about the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. The old are already there. People see what was already there right on the surface of the text. They could tell the history. They could tell you what the laws are. But now the patterns are a little clear. The foreshadowings, the typologies, the anticipations. And, and what 
that has the effect of doing is reshaping your entire notion of the kingdom. If the kingdom is led by a king who was already a suffering servant, where does the suffering servant fit into this pattern of a kingdom? It cannot be merely an explosive display of power. You've got to fit the suffering in somewhere. It begins to transform all of your expectations about the nature of the kingdom as well. So it seems to me, therefore, that we should uh, gain wonder in worship where there is a fresh grasp of how God has put the Bible together. We should gain um, gratitude uh, in humility for the gift of seeing the truth about God and his gospel because some of us see it and some of us don't. And it certainly isn't because we're any wiser or morally better. This, too, is given by God's grace. And there are other lessons to learn, but I pass them by. Now, that's my introduction. Now we turn to Matthew 25, 24 and 25. Before I read 25, 14 and following, let me uh, fill in just a wee bit. Matthew 24 and 25, sometimes called the Olivet Discourse or the Eschatological Discourse, is really broken up into two unequal parts. In 24, 1 to 35, Jesus gives his own exposition of what takes place at the end, however you understand end. It's one of the most disputed parts of Matthew's Gospel. It is not easy. Commentators differ. But now with the third volume of Dr. Gibbs' commentary coming out, we'll finally understand what the truth is. But nevertheless, he would be the first to acknowledge that the passages are highly disputed. And, um, and, and yet, in general terms, we all know what they're about. That is, it's talking about the end and tribulation and suffering and fall of Jerusalem and things in that order. Then from 36, 24, 36 to the end of 25, we are basically told how to wait. So you get one half of the chapter talking about things at the end, and then from 24, 36 all the way to the end of 25, you're told about how to wait. Because there are different kinds of waiting. When uh, my son, who's now 25, was uh, only three or four, um, he, 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 he was... Uh, interesting to watch before a meal. Uh, he was born hungry. Uh, he grew up hungry, not because we denied him all that much, just because he was a big lad who was very active and always hungry, and because we were, on the whole, um, given to discouraging in-between-meal snacks. Uh, there was no point pushing mom too hard on that front, but any time you got near a mealtime, he was mommy's little shadow, you know, no matter where she went. Um, uh, he was right behind. Uh, it, it's just 10 more minutes, Nicholas, just, just 10 more minutes. But try to explain um, uh, that sort of thing to a three or three and a half year old. You know, delayed gratification is not an easy concept for a three and a half year old. And meanwhile, at the same time, I might have been in my study trying to finish off the last paragraph or two of a manuscript I was trying to write. And uh, Nicholas could hardly wait for those 10 minutes to pass. And they probably seemed like an eon or two to him. And for me, the moments were flying by. I had the thoughts in my head. I, I, I didn't want to come back to this and sort them all out again. I wanted to get them down. I didn't want the time to go by. And then the time passed. So both of us, objectively speaking, were seeing the same 10 minutes go by, but we were waiting in quite different ways. So you wait for the sunset to go down. You wait for somebody to die of cancer. 
You wait for the declining year, years as someone with Alzheimer's finally passes away. My mother died of Alzheimer's. You wait for an answer from God. Job sits in an ash pit scraping his scabs with broken pottery because he's waiting for God. There's so many different kinds of waiting. So how do we wait for the end? That's the question. And it seems to me that Jesus gives the answer in five steps. I'll scan the first three quickly, and then the last two parables we're going to look at today really provide the last two of the five ways of describing how you wait for the end. So in 24, 36 to 44, wait for the Lord Jesus as those who do not wish to be surprised by the Master's return. Wait for the Lord Jesus as those who do not wish to be surprised by the Master's return. There are several little vignettes that are offered. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. Now the parallel that is being drawn is not between the evil of Noah's day and the evil of our day. It's between the normalcy of Noah's day and the normalcy of our day. Whatever else was going on in terms of evil or social confusion or whatever, the point is people were still getting married, having kids, going to funerals, having parties, whatever they do. And so it will be at the coming of the end. There's a certain normalcy that will swamp people's expectations. That is, instead of actually waiting for Jesus to return, they will be involved in all ordinary activities. There's a danger in normalcy. And then to take a couple more vignettes, two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. In the nature of first century culture, probably these are father and son or two brothers or uncle and nephews, close family relation. One is taken, the other left behind. Whether taken to be with Christ in paradise or taken in judgment, it really doesn't matter. It's probably taken in judgment, judging by the taken language in the immediately preceding verses. But it doesn't really matter. The point is the suddenness and finality of it. And then, literally, uh, similarly, two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. Again, most likely two sisters, mother and daughter. They're squatting in front of this handmill. One is pulling the, the, the lever around 180 degrees. The other one reaches around, pulls it 180 degrees. They put in more seed in the hole in the top, pull it around, pull it around. One's taken, the other's gone. And then there's one more vignette to make the same point. Understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. I've been broken into and robbed only once. It was when I was a, an undergraduate student studying chemistry at McGill University many, many moons ago. And um, I didn't have much that was valuable. I did have a wonderful cowhide case that I had borrowed from my dad. Dad had had it when he was a young man. This was a spectacularly beautiful case that he had let me have when I went off to university to carry my stuff in and so on. And it wasn't even locked. But somebody came along with a sharp knife and slashed it open, cut the straps and all of that just to get inside. There was nothing there to take. But I guarantee you, if I had known the thief was coming, there was no way in God's green earth he would have got it. You know, I would have taken protection, whether I would have called the police or had two or three of my buddies in or whatever we would have done. But we didn't know. It came at a time when we weren't expecting it, and it, it, it happened. And all of this to demonstrate one point. Wait for the Lord Jesus as those who do not wish to be surprised by the Master's return. Second, 
Wait for the Lord Jesus as stewards who must give an account of their service, faithful or otherwise. Wait for the Lord Jesus as those who must give an account for their service, faithful or otherwise. Now we have reached chapter 24, verses 43 to 51. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. In fact, that sounds a bit like what happens a little farther down in the parable of verses 25, 14 and following. Rewarded for faithful service now and as a result gaining more responsibility later. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time. And he then begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, in this case, this is not mere waiting for unexpectedness, although there's some of that. What you discover in each of these parables from now on is there is an overtone of one or more of the preceding parables. There is a note of unexpectedness here, and we'll discover that there is a note of responsibility from this one that bleeds into the next one and so on. Each parable begins to pick up the themes of the previous ones. So the note of beware of unexpected returns is, is there, all right, but another dimension has been thrown in. Now there's not just an emphasis on waiting for this unexpected return, but recognizing now how you are held accountable for service in the master's kingdom while you wait. And if, in fact, you have dissipated what has been entrusted to you, then you are in big trouble at the end. Third, wait for the Lord Jesus as those who know the master's coming may be long delayed. Wait for the Lord Jesus as those who know the master's coming may be long delayed. Now we've reached the parable of the ten virgins, 25, 1 to 13. Now, I won't take time to read this particular parable, but I'm sure that you remember it. To understand it well, you have to remind yourself of how weddings worked in village Palestine in the first century. It was not uncommon for a kind of um, informal, relatively private ceremony to take place at the bride's home first. Um, where there would be some festivities that would go on for a few hours, sometimes well into the night. And then a candlelight procession through the streets to the groom's place. And the groom's place was where the proper ceremony and festivities took place. If it was a pretty small wedding, that might just go on for a day. A really posh one could easily go on for an entire week. And, um, and in those days, um, uh, it was the groom who paid for the wedding by and large, and, and that was one of the reasons why they got married a little later. Some have objected to the fact that in this account there's no mention of the bride. And some find the absence deeply, deeply uh, insulting or mysterious or symbol-laden or whatever. Um, but but it, it really isn't as far as I can see. Our newspaper accounts of contemporary weddings run something like this. Um, the bride was wearing, and then paragraph after paragraph, and the taffeta, and how long the train was, and wh whether she got it from her great aunt, and, and how expensive it was, and the jewels in the front, and whatever. And then what the bridesmaids were wearing, and how, how they were lovely, and the flower girl, and all of that. And somewhere toward the end of the write-up, it says the groom was also present. 
Um, in the ancient world, it was just the opposite. Everything really focused on the groom. And, um, and here there is no particular importance to the bride other than the fact that she had to be presupposed to be there if you're going to have a wedding. And, um, and then as you process through the streets, the people who had been invited to the wedding would join in and they would join the procession. And if it was after dark, you could actually spot them by the fact that they had their oil-fed um, uh, lamps, their oil-fed uh, uh, candles, um, uh, joining in on the procession all the way to the groom's place. And if the groom were at all posh, and so that there were a courtyard and a gate and the like, people would go in and the gates would be shut. There was all, always a danger in the ancient world of party crashers, just as there, 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 there are party crashers today, too. And uh, they didn't have people ticking, ticking off names at the door or anything like that. But on the other hand, to come along two or three hours late would be a terrible insult. It shows that you hadn't been ready to, to join in the party as it came through the streets. So there are ten virgins. Five are wise and five are foolish. The entire distinction between their wisdom and their folly, the entire distinction, is one group prepares for a long wait and the other group does not. There is no other distinction. They all fall asleep and they're not blamed for it. It's not as if the text is saying, eh, 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 shouldn't have fallen asleep. It wouldn't have solved the problem because the real problem was not enough oil. That was the problem. So when the cry goes up at midnight, a little later than anybody expected, here comes the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Everybody wakes up. They're going to trim their lamps, which means that they have been burning slowly, but now they're going to be trimmed so that they can burn more brightly. And they discover that in the case of the foolish virgins, there's not enough oil left. So they're, they're going to go out. They weren't ready for such a long delay. The sleep, in other words, is merely the modality that lets the oil burn so low before uh, it's discovered. That's all it is. And so they have to go into shop and bang on doors and get shopkeepers down from upstairs and, and open up rooms in the middle of the night to, to, to finally provide some oil and, and, and so forth. And by the time they get there, they really are very late and they're excluded. I never knew you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. Thus, 13 indicates there is an ongoing emphasis of the first line, the first um, way of waiting. It's at an hour that you don't expect. And the whole emphasis on chapter 25, 1 to 13, presupposes there's need to be responsible, but now it's responsible for enduring, for being ready. And in particular, wait for the Lord Jesus, as those who know the Master's coming may belong delayed. I don't know when he's coming, but I don't know when he's not. And so you, you have to be ready. That sort of argumentation is picked up often enough in the New Testament. When Peter argues, for example, that we shouldn't forget this, that uh, God's counting of time might be a bit different from our own. A thousand years might be like a day for God. Whatever. 